Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hey everyone, I'm back in the United States, home from Bali. I am actually in Arizona right now, just hopping around. Um, I'm visiting my friend Autumn for uh, a few more days, been here since Friday. Um, being back from Bali has been tough. I knew this was going to happen, but the culture shock coming back here was honestly worse than the culture shock going to Bali. The jet lag coming back here has been exceptionally worse. Um, I gave myself a little bit of a cold, I think, from all of the traveling and just burnt out nature of um, flying across the entire world (laughs) into complete opposing time zones, completely different climates. I never thought that I would miss the insane humidity of Bali, but being back in the desert, I feel like a dried up shriveled raisin. I felt like supple and fresh and... (laughs) sweaty and moist in Bali. And like, yes, I was sweating all the time and like barely wanted to put clothes on, but honestly, kind of prefer it to this. I feel so fucking dry. Anyway, um, Bali was amazing. As I said, in the last few episodes, I went out there with a few friends of mine, my friend, Chris, who, by the way, um, Chris Ryan, if you have not heard of him, I highly recommend checking him out. He wrote an amazing book that I read many years ago called Sex at Dawn. It examines um, relationships and sexuality through the lens of prehistory, anthropology, psychology, et cetera, et cetera. And he has a really great podcast called Tangentially Speaking, which was definitely a huge inspiration for me in creating this podcast. I remember feeling so aligned with so many of the topics that he discussed on his podcast and agreed with so much of what he said. And I recognized that a lot of the podcasts that I listened to and related to were hosted by older white men, which nothing against older white men, but I thought it might be valuable to create a podcast from a young woman's point of view that shared a lot of those same opinions and viewpoints. I think a lot of what we're missing in our world are is the recognition around the ways that we share opinions and to encourage people to speak up. You know, it's probably a little taboo 
for a woman to agree with a man a lot of the time, right? Like we feel like we should have our own separate opinions and they should be um, opposed to cis white male (laughs) agendas. And I don't necessarily think that. I think the way that we move forward is in recognizing how a lot of us from completely different parts of life and different genders, different races actually agree on a lot. Um, so anyway, that was a huge inspiration behind starting my podcast. I was out there with him, a few other friends, um, definitely check out his work. Um, I'll have to get him on the show one day. Um, as I said, I'm currently in Arizona visiting my friend Autumn. I've been thinking a lot about community. Um, I just recorded a bonus episode for Patreon all about, um, femininity and masculinity and, The mother wound kind of as a continuation from the last episode and um, talking about my own personal experience. I touched a little bit on my opinion of the Me Too movement, talked about a lot of kind of risky taboo topics. If you're interested in hearing that, definitely head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Anya Cates. You can support the show, keep it ad free and get access to tons of perks like bonus episodes of me talking about gender. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about community, which was a huge inspiration for recording that episode, you know, coming back from Bali, being alone in my cold apartment, not having anyone to share space with, um, was really hard. And I realized how much I punish myself for what I view as pure expressions of femininity. So, you know, being nurtured, being within community and coming here to visit my friend has been just really nice. You know, I would like to stop punishing myself for this kind of what I see as a myth of Western patriarchal self-reliance and really start to embody what feels like authentic expressions of my femininity, which are like, fuck yeah, I want to live close to my friends. I want to cook dinner for people have dinner cooked for me. I want to live in those kinds of spaces. Um, So it's been a real pleasure to spend time with my friend after coming home from a trip in which I felt very much surrounded by the presence of others. Um, On that note, I am going to start recording. It's going to probably start as bonus episodes on Patreon, but I think I'm going to start recording kind of like very unscripted, casual conversations with my friends. So I think um, Autumn and I are going to record a conversation tonight about just like whatever topics inspire us. Um, I said this on the bonus episode, but I would love to start to include more kind of just like raw conversations with people living their truth and living authentic lives. I think with an, under the umbrella of saving the world. A huge part of that for me is people just embodying themselves and living authentically. And so in addition to these sort of broader topics around the environment and, um, all the other stuff we've talked about on the show, relationships, et cetera, just like cool people doing cool shit, I think is a huge way that we save the world. (laughs) Um, and so I think I'm going to start to include more conversations that just are a bit more casual about people's lives and the lives that they've chosen to live. Um, that first conversation is going to be with Autumn and is also going to be available just on Patreon. So 
I would highly encourage you to head on over there and help support this little show. I want to grow it and spread it around as much as possible, and I need your help to do that. So again, patreon.com slash Anya Cates. I'm going to be releasing a whole ton of stuff on Patreon. I'm a little behind on my perks over there. So um, now is definitely the time to sign up. I'm about to unleash a slew of extra shit for you over there. Um, if you don't have the money to support the show, always just leaving a review on iTunes or some stars also really helps and it's totally free. Of course, you can always just tell your friends to listen. If you hear something that you think someone would resonate with, send them a link. It goes a long way. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Today's episode is with Mark Groves which I'm so excited about. Um, he has an amazing Instagram account called create the love. Uh, I found him through his, um, girlfriend, his partner, Kylie, who I interviewed on the very first episode of this show after the introduction. If you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend doing it. We talked a lot about health and healing and taking responsibility for ourselves and sort of like what it's like to go through a dark night of the soul and come out the other side as a new person. Um, so I've been looking forward to interviewing Mark Groves since before I even launched the podcast, I knew he was someone who I wanted to get on the show and to talk about relationships. Um, he gives a lot of no bullshit advice and practical ideas for how to get in touch with our own bullshit and toxic patterning in order to have healthy relationships, both romantic and otherwise, um, I won't talk too much about that because we unpack it all on the show. Um, I'm really looking forward to hopefully having more conversations with both Mark and Kylie. I think I'm heading up to Vancouver this summer um, where they both reside. Hopefully I can meet them in person, maybe have record a couple more um, podcast episodes. So we shall see, um, but super grateful to have them on the show. Um... I think that's it. I will let you guys listen. Uh, and I'll catch you on the other side. All right, cool. Super excited to have Mark Groves on the podcast today. Um, you were definitely Thanks. You were definitely one of the first people on my list when I had this idea to talk and to, to really carry the torch of relationships on the show. So... It's a long time coming. Well, I'm honored. I'm honored <laughs> to be part of this conversation. Sweet. My favorite subject, so it's, it's real easy. <laughs> it works out. Yeah, it does. Um, cool. So you are what you refer to as a human connection specialist, which I think is pretty awesome. I'd love for you to talk a bit about what that means and um, talk about what you do, but also I think talk about how you got there. What I feel is really valuable for people is to kind of hear about people's stories and how they arrived at where they arrived and used whatever they went through to inform their current journey. So if you want to kind of start there. Mm, start at the beginning. Um, <laughs> well, human behavior was always really fascinating to me, but from, I wasn't consciously really interested in it. Um, probably till I was in, my like early or late teens. And that's because I got a job in sales. So I was really like that at the sales job that I had, which was at a place called uh, future shop, which Best Buy uh, bought. So it was very similar to Best Buy. 
Except he wore a suit, so it was like even you yeah, added a little extra cheddar on that one. So you know, I'm like an 18 year old, 19 year old in sales, selling like cell phones and you know TVs and back then VCR, you know, like all the old stuff and fax machines. So that tells you how long ago that was. And um, I was really fascinated with how to get people to change their behavior, like what makes someone choose something? What make, how do I get someone to switch behaviors like from one television brand to another? Like I, I was, so I would just play with this experience with people of like, okay, well I tried this and now I'm going to try this. And I got really good at asking um, questions. And I also got really good at building rapport in seconds because you know, in your sales cycle and selling electronics, I'm sure everyone has, has gone into an electronics store and someone's tried to sell you an extended warranty um, I got really good at that. And so I would read books like how to get anyone to do anything, you know, like how to win friends and influence people, you know, like all the cheddar cheese business books. And then um, it probably wasn't until you know, I went through heartbreak, a really big breakup at 20. And then I started to read other books about like how to pick up girls, how to, because I was so hurt. I couldn't, I was like, but I tried this thing, this like relationship thing. And I was doing the best I could, but I knew I wasn't doing so great. And so I wanted to learn different skills, but the only really available relationship skills <laughs> that a man is safe to be reading, or at least appearingly safe to be reading his ego will still be intact is like a book, like the game. Um, which is actually a fantastic book that's not actually about picking up women. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it's an often misrepresented book. But uh, I ended up in a relationship with a girl I went to college with who is really wonderful. And we dated for five years. And um, when we got engaged, I was just, man, the day we got engaged, I was just beside myself. It was like my whole life I'd been taught to get married by a certain age, have kids by a certain age. And if you don't do that, you're sort of broken. You're not on track. And I think we add things like college to that and make sure you do a practical degree, one that can make you money so that you can take care of your family, you know, as a man. And of course that message is so you could take care of yourself for women. So you don't need a man, you know, so there's all these you know, and I'm speaking heteronormatively, but of course those balances work in all gender combinations. And when I got engaged, it was this weird moment where I finally met the moment I'd been taught to want, but I didn't want it. And that felt really weird. It felt, it was like a, I was in an existential crisis right after I asked and she said, yes. And also because it was like, I mean, on a lot of levels, I knew she would say yes, of course, because you don't really ask those types of questions unless you're planning on it. But I was really afraid to actually get married. I was afraid to get engaged. There was something not feeling right for me. Um, I was blessed because she is and was an amazing partner. So that made it even more conflicting. Because I was like, why don't I want this? Like, she's amazing. What's wrong with me? And then I would talk to people about what I was going through, my confusion, my struggles and people, you know, I find this whenever you ask for advice from anyone that might be affected by your choice, it's usually very biased advice because they're afraid of the impact your choice is going to have on them. So I learned at that point to stop doing that. <laughs> and I, um, but people would say things like, you're just afraid of commitment. And I was like, well, I don't, I think it's more than that. Like, <laughs> it feels like more than that. 
But I thought that was fascinating too, because it's like our whole lives were told like men need to be emotional and they need to understand their feelings. They need to express themselves. And as I'm like in the shit, in the depths of my feelings, I'm told they're not valid. No, no, that's not really how you feel. You're just Peter Pan. You just want to grow up and never grow up. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm more emotionally complex than this. It feels complex. And um, I put my story on this forum on a website that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, but it was called uh, The Runaway Bride. And it was all people who'd been engaged or married who felt like it was wrong or like got out of it or, you know, found some sort of sense of uh, direction. So I posted my story and I got so many beautiful questions and, you know, strangers. Right. And I, I think I don't know how other to refer to them, but they felt like angels, like guides, because they didn't give a shit what I chose. They just cared that I found peace. And that was the first I had to go to someone I didn't know for that. And you could go to a therapist for that, but therapists don't often tell you what to do, right? You know, they don't, that's not the purpose of it. You're supposed to find the answer yourself. And I had this one lady ask me three questions that just changed my life. Like the first one was, if she left you tomorrow, would you be okay? And I was like, yeah, I'd definitely be okay. Like there was like a sense of relief. And the second question was, can you imagine what it would feel like or look like waiting for her at your altar, whatever your altar is? And I was like, no, that like made me anxious. And the last question was, um, could someone else love her better? And that like just rocked me because it was the first time I ever thought of the situation about her. I was so in my own mind and my own heart and my own, um, how will this affect me? What will people think of me that I never thought about my fear and what it was doing for her and like the, her, her right to have someone love her at the level that she is so worthy. Um, and of course the follow up question to that, you just have to ask yourself is do, do you want to, you know, do you want to be the one who loves them better? And I didn't want to, and I didn't know why I just knew that I didn't want to. And so, um, I ended the engagement and that's when I really started to think about like, okay, well, I'm really good at communicating. Like I'm exceptional at it in sales. I was really good at it. And I was like, why can't I talk about my feelings? Like that doesn't make any sense. It's not a skill set issue. There's something else there. And then I started to, I read uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that was the first time I ever really thought like, why am I on this planet? Like maybe there's something more than just like getting married and having kids and like doing a finance degree and not liking your job. Like maybe there's more to this. And I'd never thought about that. And I really feel like when I ended my engagement, I think that we all are sort of like one giant decision away from rejoining our soul. And usually that decision involves like sort of like a, a rebellion against a system or a, a way of thinking or a way of being that we've never really aligned with. I'm not saying that I didn't align with marriage because I certainly align with, um, you know, the concept of marriage defined by me and defined by, you know, my partner. Um, but I didn't align with the Catholic church's version of marriage because when I got out of that relationship, I all of a sudden looked around me and I saw no matter the, the color or the religion, I, I had been told the story, like you marry someone in your twenties or whatever, and you have kids and you stay in love forever. And I was like, that's not what's fucking happening. 
Like people are getting divorced all over the place. A lot of people who are married don't even like each other. And like all these grandparents that everyone's like, oh, they've been together 75 years. I started to get really annoyed by those memes that would say like, what made you last 75 years? And it would be like, well, that's back when we took commitment seriously. And I'm like, oh, fuck off. Like if you stayed, if we left too early, you stay too long. So don't even give me that shit. So I started to just like notice all the messages we were receiving about relationships and I just spent the last, I was 27 when I ended my engagement. I've certainly been uh, many versions of myself and I've had to basically like peel away all of the things that aren't me and give, you know, I don't think you ever have to like uh, um, necessarily become who you are as opposed to expose who you are um, because you already are who you are. But it's like, I just started to get more connected to truth and what truth meant for me and what alignment meant for me and what integrity meant for me. And the idea of um, romantic relationship to me was like, it's everything like connecting to a partner in a sacred way and knowing how to navigate conflict and turn into it into a deeper connection. Who the fuck is teaching that? And so as I'm like reading this stuff and learning it, because I was so science-based at the time I was a pharmaceutical rep too. So again, I was still in sales still. And I, I was just like, picked out the science of relationships. I just was like, read all the studies. I read the books. I started to like, you know, nerd out on like John Gottman and Julie Gottman's work, you know, like uh, Sue Johnson. I mean, all the main players in the research world, but I was like, no one's teaching this. So I'm going to start just writing about what I didn't do well. And so my work really started with like, I'd post a quote. I first started a website and started writing. Um, I forget what my first article was. Oh yeah. It was about like, um, how, what you do on the toilet determines the quality of your relationship. And it's just like how we go to our phones when we use the toilet, because there's, um, something more exciting in our phone than the person we share our uh, actual cellular space with. Um, people didn't like that title though, (laughs) but yeah, so that's, I mean, really in, I guess a very long form, that wasn't a short story. Um, that's how I got here is I was like, no one's, telling us it's okay to fuck up. Like no one's telling us that it's okay to break up. Like the first talk I ever did, I remember I said, not every relationship's meant to last forever. And man, people were like, what? Like, I was like, are you still with the boyfriend or girlfriend you had when you're in grade eight? No. So that's proof. But why all of a sudden when you're in your twenties, you're supposed to have shit figured out. You know, it's like the first time you have sex, you're supposed to be good at it. Like, come on, no one was good their first time. And if you tell people you were, you're lying. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's almost hypocritical, like to what you were talking about in regard to sales, right? That like, in order to be good at what you were doing, you were reading it, you were researching it, you were studying it, you were improving upon yourself in that way. And there is this bizarre expectation that we're just supposed to know how to be in relationship. And I think I would love for you to speak a little bit about like, cause there's such humility in recognizing that we have something to learn in this space. Mm-hmm. And I went through a similar process uh, specifically after I read drama of the gifted child in recognizing that my like highly functioning self was g- great, fine, but p- potentially born out of like mm. a desire to cover <laughs> for my less than admirable qualities. 
Um, so can you talk about like that shift of recognizing that when we are highly functioning in other areas, that that doesn't necessarily mean that we know ourselves and that that isn't an excuse to not go down that road? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the times, you know, it's like the concept of work and life and work-life balance, which I, I don't think is a really a real thing. You know, I think there's life and there's everything you put within life. Um, a lot of us develop mastery or expertise in certain areas to distract away from our vulnerable spaces, right? So um, we might become really great at our bodies, at food, at money, at career, at purpose. I think that's one of the main ones is people really obsess over their bodies or they really obsess over their careers or they have a career with their body, you know, and when we really create this level of mastery and perfection, it's, um, it serves the purpose of like, well, I finally achieved this thing, right? So now I'm good. Now I'm good enough. Don't notice all those, the, the vulnerabilities I have underneath this, you know, like I for sure used humor most of my life and charm to not be seen when I was deeply hurting after my 20th, when I was 20 and I went through that breakup, I completely pivoted my values and moved to like wanting to pick up. I'd never picked up a girl in my life. You know, all of a sudden I wanted to pick up girls and like be seen that I was okay. And so I developed this sort of veneer that I was charming and funny and, and it was just a protection from a really hurting, like deeply hurting 19, 20 year old. And I probably didn't face that till I was much older. No, I probably didn't. I didn't face that till I was much older. And what happens with the sort of curse of the perfectionist, as anyone knows who's a perfectionist, is that you just move the bar anyways. As soon as you achieve anything, you just change what you have to achieve. No one ever gets to savor the actual win, you know, because the whole concept of being perfectionist is actually never allowing yourself to be enough. So that's why the, the, the yardstick is always moving because the curse of it is that it has to move so that you never feel worthy. Um, and the other side of that is if you ever get somebody or receive love and affirmation and affection, you know, and you are a high achiever, the sort of flaw to all of that is that we'll always wonder if it's because we achieved all these things and it's who we are, or it's actually because we are, you know, at our soul, this person, and they chose us for that. That's, that's sort of the curse of it. And so when you look at it, you can find mastery in every area of your life and sort of avoid intimacy, right? Cause we often use these, I'm so busy. I work all the time. I'm always working out a moment, you know, all these things. Um, but if your, your relationships won't thrive. Now, if you find mastery in relationship, your whole life will be good. If you find mastery in romantic relationships and personal relationships, your work relationships will be fucking peanuts. Let's be honest. If you can handle conflict with your partner, you can handle conflict with anybody. You know, and I always, you know, I say this a lot of like, show me who you are when you're about to be rejected. Show me who you are, where your heart's on the line. And I'll know if you've actually done some personal work because everyone can skate through work conflict. But who are you when your partner says, I don't feel connected to you? Like, fuck, man, that's hard to hear. And I think this idea of, like, being a high-functioning human, it, it, what it really is is evidence that you could be an exceptionally high-functioning human in a relationship. It means that you have this ability to see um, how to build skills, how to be resilient, 
Um, so it is really testament and evidence to a really great work ethic, but also probably an avoidance strategy to not have to deal with their hearts, um, which requires humility, right? As you said, I mean, it's so ironic that you said that because last night I was writing something and I wrote that humility is the gateway to sort of a self-actualized life. Like if you will actually look at what you're good at and what you're not good at, both are equally important, and then steer your life and your information seeking in the direction of what will contribute to building the things you're not so good at, you will get to a place where you take responsibility for your whole life. If you take responsibility for your life, your life's going to be great. It's going to be amazing because you're in charge of it. Yeah. It reminds me of this thing that happened to me in one of my very first, I mean, I've been in therapy on and off my whole life, but during this period of growth that I was in, I was very intentional about the therapy I wanted to have and really went in and was like, I know I'm capable of lying to you. I don't want to do that. I want you to call me out on my shit. And I just want this to be a totally new experience. And I remember saying to her, because I was someone that had been in pretty much nonstop relationships from age like 16 to 27. And I was, there was absolutely some degree of toxicity, codependency within that space, but I had become so self-hating of my desire to be in relationship that I was in this moment of getting out of the relationship because of probably fear of doing it again that I went into one of my early sessions and said, like, I've just been in these nonstop monogamous relationships and I need to do shit on my own and be self-reliant and like be able to, you know, not depend on anyone else. And she's like, okay, well, that's nice and probably useful. But what I actually think the end goal here is for you is actually to learn about yourself to the point where you can be in a healthy relationship mm. and learn how to be dependent on someone in a healthy way and learn to trust and to love. And I fought against that <laughs> so much. And I think I'm now like, as everything unfolded, recognized how tied it is to, it's like, we feel as if we need to be on either end of the spectrum. It's either like we're super codependent and unhealthy in relationships or super, um, following this kind of bizarre patriarchal myth, I think of like self-reliance and doing it on your own and like not being supported by anyone. And it's mm -hmm. a really vulnerable space to be able to be like, you know what, actually I think being in relationship is not just part of like a huge imperative aspect of the work overall. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd love to talk more about that too. Like at what point, because I do think there's absolutely huge value in doing work on ourselves on our own. And and what is that? Like, when does somebody know that they're ready to grow within the space of relationship? And how does that work differ from the work that you're doing on your own versus the work that you're doing with a partner in terms of learning about yourself? That's a great question. I think, you know, you, you pointed out exactly sort of the challenge most of us have till we don't, which is, is that we're either far too open and we are doormats and we overshare and we give way too much of ourselves or we're closed and we're unavailable and we don't know how to oscillate between the two. You know, it's sort of like the same idea of 
like most people's boundaries are what they call porous boundaries. So they allow too much. They get walked on. They get treated like shit. They allow bad behavior, disrespectful behavior. They are disrespectful, you know, like it causes all the things. And then they are like a pressure cooker and they pop and they push away and they reject. And so, so the first one, you're like connected to the other person, but you're not protected. You don't feel safe. The second one, you're protected because you're not connected to them anymore, right? So you're not connected. So you're protected, but you're not connected. And of course, a healthy boundary, a healthy relationship is you're connected to someone else, but you're protected. And so you can think about it in this idea of being codependent or not codependent is like you are in the relationship, but you are still holding on to a healthy sense of self. That's the hardest part is most people don't know how to hold on to who they are and be in love. And so what happens is, is we get really good at being who we are when we're not in love. And then we often will, you know, we'll enter a relationship and we don't know how to hold on to that and share with another person. Because most of the time we've been taught the construct that when we're in a relationship, a relationship is two people like completely, you know, yeah. And it's, you know, this idea of like, the honeymoon phase of all these chemicals and you know we're just like be around me all the time you laugh i laugh you know all the stuff but there's a separate way of being that's much more important of, of creating in your relationship which is uh, i'm me you're you and what we create together is actually a separate entity and that entity is our relationship it is not who we are it is the thing the space we share between us and that's why you see desire drop in long-term relationships too. You know, and there's an idea that we adapt, right? Like hedonic adaptation, that humans love everything for the first time. And it's like when we listen to music and everyone wants to change the song after the first 10 seconds, you know, that's a, sort of like a micro version of hedonic adaptation. But what happens is, is there's no mystery anymore, right? Like there's, there's no space between myself and another. And I, I now look at my partner and see them as the reason I don't have a self. So I resent them, even though I'm actually part of this whole orchestration. I'm going to blame them. I'm going to resent them. And then I'm going to leave the relationship and I'm going to feel safe and I'm going to feel whole and I'm going to feel independent and I'm going to work on me. But I still don't know how to do that and be in connection. So that's why you could have all your shit figured out when you're single. But then when you hit a relationship, you're like, damn, I thought I figured that out. But no, that's where healing really happens. You know, our wounds occur in a relationship and that's where they get healed. If you want to grow, just keep falling in love. That shit will teach you so much so fast. It's a fast track, you know, and we used to use marriage and relationship as a way to meet our sort of Maslow's lowest needs, right? Shelter, safety, security, you know, all the things. Um, but really now you can use relationship as a space to, you know, in Maslow's needs to reach self-actualization, which is a pretty cool thought that through another you can see what you're not good at find humility and grow and share the same feedback with them so they grow too and you guys can create this like fucking crazy cool amazing connection yeah i do think relationships can sort of serve as a road to get closer or farther away from yeah. yourself right like there are these two paths I, what are your because i know this is something that I certainly struggled with, you talked about blaming the other person. And I think even still, when I think back on some of the relationships that I in were, that were really unhealthy, it's 
a lot easier now, but hard to take responsibility for my role. And so even saying like, that was a toxic, that person was toxic. That person was abusive. That situation was a toxic situation. It takes two (laughs) to to participate in those dynamics. Um, So, you know, how, how to deal with that? Like what is our own responsibility in these situations and how is it that by not taking on that responsibility, do we prevent our own growth and our ability to see that situation for what it is? Um, Well, it's hard to actually take responsibility for that because when you do that, you're also taking, like you're essentially taking responsibility for putting yourself in harm's way. Right. So then there's a lot of shame with that because it really doesn't make cognitive sense you know when we think about it intellectually it's like why would i choose something that's bad for me like that doesn't make sense right and because there's just such more subconscious things going on of course um but in the context you know if you think about someone who dates an addict and usually people who date addicts date more than one addict you know they have a long line of wanting to fix people and they all often be attracted to narcissists they'll often be attracted to people who are manipulative And that's because their whole work is trying to save people. And so that role, if they didn't take it on, they wouldn't match with that person. And so a good way to sort of like think about this in a more global scale is everybody in New York or in LA or wherever you are has access to the exact same pool of people on Tinder, right? Like that's true. It's not like one person gets the narcissist pool and the other person gets the great catch pool. Right. Everyone gets the same pool, but only some people end up in relationship with the same types of people. And that's because there's something they're doing differently that is not coding red flags and not coding where someone else who finds healthy relationships is not even entertaining. And so on an energetic level, this person who seeks out healthy relationships recognize and codes things differently, but isn't even energetically in the same space. They wouldn't even give it the same time. Like they would probably see, maybe even open up and match with this person by chance. The person would flake, not reply, but they don't care because their self-worth isn't in whether the person replies, their self-worth is in staying true to them, which is easy for me to say because I've had to grow through it, but it's, it's easy to say, but it's so hard to do. That's what I mean to say is that it's challenging because it's breaking a pattern. You know, when you're the person who's dating people who are bad for you, you have to accept that you date people who are bad for you. That requires really great humility. And then you have to accept that there is a reason that you do it that is not your fault, but it's your responsibility. And, you know, I sort of think like when we really mature to love, which doesn't have to do with age, it can just be with the way that we we step towards relationship is that we move from being like these children who just want to love all out, who just want to care, who just want to save people who usually we want to save our parents. And then we mistake this partner for our parent, which feels weird, right? That's fucked up to think about. And so we want to save this person. But of course, what the child needs is not to go follow the path of candy or the path of pain. It needs a warrior with them who says, no, this isn't good for us. It's, it's sort of like the concept in, in therapy, they would call it the concept of like reparenting, that you're reparenting yourself. 
but I, I don't know. Uh, I like that term, but I, I think I just more think that the pa- the parents already available. The warriors already available. It's, you don't have to parent this child. The child still needs to exist because the child's there, but we need an actual adult in the room. And adulting's right. hard. There's a lot of memes about it. <laughs> there are. You know that. <laughs> and I think it's hard too, because in accepting, you know, there, this doesn't just come out of nowhere. This, that, I mean, personally, culturally, this idea that we should be saving people that like our love is going to unlock the key to this person's heart. I mean, that's not just something we've learned in our own families. It's something that's so Disney too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like Um, woman's laying on a train track, man saves her like, get out of here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think in recognizing that is to also recognize that we've been influenced in that way, that mm-hmm. there's some sort of socially constructed idea that we've internalized that is unhealthy. And in order to break out of that, we do have to face the fact that, yeah, maybe our relationship with our parent or primary caregiver wasn't what we thought it was. And that in and of itself unlocks a whole other <laughs> treasure. Well, there's a whole other existential crisis, right? Because people have this story about the childhood, unless they had overtly bad childhoods, you know, then the story probably matches pretty well. Um, but it's, I think we have a hard time humanizing our parents. You know, one of the ways that we can really do it rapidly is just think of your parents as, as the children of parents. And that then you can see that they're fallible. You know, like they're doing the best they can, but that doesn't remove the right you have to your pain. You know, and it's one thing I want to say about the love, like love will heal all, love will save all. Um, Codependency won't. And that's the difference is like seeking to pour your love all over everything and try to heal everybody and save everybody while self-abandoning. Well, leaving yourself to do that is not healthy, but holding on to who you are, if you have to abandon yourself to get anybody, then you're already lost. But like, if you can hold on to who you are and you can tell your partner or whoever it is, like that behavior is not okay. When you're ready to be this way, I'm open to you. Otherwise, no. Um, and you have to stand by that. That's love. That's actually the invitation to healing. The invitation to healing is our own healing. And that's why whenever you see like someone gets sober, usually the person who's dating that person who got sober starts to go nutty because their whole job was to get this person sober. And now they don't have a job anymore. You know, and I think that's true of all, like if you don't, if your role in relationship is to try to help people, then you likely took on the role of wanting to help people as a kid, as you were saying, you know, this space of like, what was our relationship like with our primary caregiver? Man, you're right though. That's a confronting subject. I remember the first time I ever filled out some sheets on that. I was like, my childhood was amazing. And my friend was like, sure it was. <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> one of those like, we'll get there, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it was great, but it also was a normal childhood that involved not feeling important and parents not always handling conflict the best way, um, you know, but standard protocol stuff that we would all be like, oh, but that's normal. I'm like, yeah, but it, that's how I learned how to handle conflict was like defensiveness, criticism, withdrawing, you know, I didn't often see someone stay 
and, and work it out, which is different. And it, it's, it's an interesting mirroring to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation of like this highly functioning self being a, um, way to hide the not so functioning part. And I, I recognize that with my own past and childhood too. It was like on the surface, this looked great. Like I had a roof over my head. I got dinner every night. Like I had a very standard middle-class upbringing. Yeah. I went to summer camp. I went traveling. Um, yeah, yeah, and, good. Yeah, shit. Yeah, exactly. And so to to recognize that like both of those things can kind of coexist yeah. at the same time. Right. Yeah, that creates such a huge space when we realize that there could be so many truths at the exact same moment. Just like you and I can disagree on something and both be right. You know, <laughs> like that's that's really hard for people to, you know, we're talking about the chaos in the world and the work, you know, our own individual work transcending sort of the the work we need to do in the world, you know, you work on you, you work on everything. Um, but that sort of concept that, uh, when you do this work that you do actually, it sort of spreads. And I think that's, that's what's so powerful about this is when you actually do personal work, you start to not only heal what you've inherited, but you, you heal what you give. It doesn't mean you're not going to mess up your kids because I'm sure we all are going to in some way. Right. Yeah, because then you can't pay too much attention to them because then they'll feel like, what is it, helicopter parents? You know, so there's always a balance. And I don't, you know, I think it's always a little interesting in how it works. Yeah. Can we unpack codependency a little bit more? I love to, whenever I talk to someone on the show about codependency, have them kind of give their own definition because it's such an umbrella term that I find just really fascinating to know like how people (laughs) consider it. So I'd love to know your how you see it, how you define it. And then also if you could give some examples of how it manifests, because I think because it's so culturally normative, it's hard for people to recognize what is and is not an unhealthy expression of love within a relationship. So one of the, I mean, obviously it shows up in a myriad of ways. Uh, One of them for me, I see most frequently is this whole wanting to save someone idea um, but I'm curious if there are any other kind of examples that you can give that are red flags as to that someone's relationship is codependent. Uh, in <laughs> we might uh, be here for like five years. Yeah, <laughs> codependent. Someone's red flags. Well, if your if if your relationship, it, first off, if as a single person you don't feel whole unless you're in a relationship, you're likely pretty codependent. Because you're looking for something to complete you, which means that you, if your partner comes or goes, that will determine how you feel about yourself. So you're dependent on the connection, right? So then the other idea, I guess, of this is that um, you can really tell when someone's enmeshed, that is just more of a psychological term, with their partner or their mom, right? That's usually where it comes from, mom or dad. But it's like, if they're, if they're upset, are you upset? Like, can you delineate between what their feelings are and what your feelings are? And that's a big thing. Most people can't, or most people take responsibility for the other person's feelings. So they won't share what's true for them, what their opinion is, what their feelings are, because they don't want to hurt their partner. And so they, because they're now taking responsibility for that other person's feelings, there's no space between who they are and who the other person is, right? So it's really about not having a gap between you and the other person, as I spoke about before, that we're either too open or too closed. So codependency is about really being just far too open. 
But a lot of people will oscillate between the two. They'll like be really like we're really good and we are in love and we and then we fight and we withdraw and we separate. And so everything in their life is dictated by their connections. I think you really learn how to separate from, and I think often this is hard to sort of conceptualize till till we get it because I didn't really get it till I got it. Is like whether your relationship stays together or not should not determine anything about whether you love yourself. Like if your relationship is your life and you lose your relationship, you will lose you. If a relationship is part of your life, of course you'll suffer. That's not, you know, that's just normal, but you won't lose you. So that's why it's so important to cultivate habits and hobbies and, and a sense of self. But most of the time, if you ask someone who's prone to being codependent, which is pretty much everybody, um, what do you want? What do you need in a relationship? Well, if they've just been hurt, they'll say they need nothing. <laughs> or if they were raised by a mom or a dad, generally a mom just based on, you know, the constructs of patriarchy and everything, um, who was really hurt, lost everything, didn't, you know, get much in the divorce, ended up with nothing, they'll not want to be available to love. And so they end up completely sort of closed off. Or if they spent their childhood wanting to protect a parent, wanting to save a parent, wanting having an alcoholic parent or an angry parent or a narcissistic parent, everything was about that other person's needs. And so they don't fully develop their needs. If that makes sense, they don't fully develop a sense of who they are because their whole childhood to protect and save themselves was about another person or more people or everybody, or they took care of their little brothers and sisters or whatever it was. They never got to be prioritized. So they don't even know what that looks like. And really, I mean, if you look at the model of relationship we've been taught just hereditarily, it's codependence. It's like man goes and works and woman gives up her life for family. So she's dependent now on the man. Her job is not necessarily, you know, in very rare cases, but it's not necessarily seen as as valuable because she's not bringing in money. The man is not actually generally doing what he loves. He's doing a job to make money, to be a provider. So he also has given up his passion, his truth. He also has been taught often, not always, to treat his partner poorly, to take what he wants when he wants it. That's not part of the human essence. So he also has to abandon himself and who he truly is. So you have these two people who the model of relationship is sacrifice. And then we're born to that and we see it. And then we write memes about it years later that say, but 75 years, how did you do it? Right? Like, and that's what we inherit. And so when marriage was originally created to get in-laws, it wasn't created for love. It wasn't created. It was created to ensure the passing on of our offspring, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, you know? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> right. Like when I first learned that, I was like, what? I knew it, <laughs> you know? But now love's part of marriage, which is really great. Um, except if we don't have the skill set to navigate it, we're going to end up not together. Right. And there is a genuine terror, I think, in this too. Like every time I've left a toxic situation, it's about setting up boundaries to protect yourself. And I think within the space of a toxic relationship, 
often those boundaries are not respected. And that's kind of how the cycle continues is like, you don't want to set them. The other person isn't respecting them and it just tumbles out of control. And I, it's like, it really does go back to childhood. Like if we stood up to, or had the capacity to stand up to our parents in that way, like it meant abandonment and yeah, it, exactly. and, and it meant, you know, God forbid a parent saying like, you don't care about me. And therefore that's why you're doing this. And I, I've seen and personally witnessed that exact same pattern existing in relationship. There's a terror of saying this doesn't work for me because that other person is going to say things that you've been avoiding. (laughs) It's like why you're staying in the situation. You don't want to know, you don't want to know really that they don't respect you in that way. Um, and that's, a really hard <laughs> mountain to kind of get over, but certainly real, very real. Yeah. I do think a lot of people, when we're in those situations, we just like the, the mind things. If I share this truth or this boundary or this request or this need, they might not respect it. They might leave me. They might yell at me. They might hurt me, whatever the story is. But in the not sharing of the thing, you actually leave yourself. And so what we don't realize is very young, we were taught to self-abandon, to be safe. And that's true of like, you could be on a very minute level. You could be born to a family that's Christian and you're born to go to this church and these beliefs and those beliefs don't align with you for whatever reason, which is totally fine but you've been pretending that you're a good Christian for your whatever. And I don't mean to pick on being a Christian. It's just easy to talk about. Um, But you get to this place where all of a sudden you're like not in alignment with what you were taught. But since the moment of conception of birth, you have been a Christian, not by choice, if that makes sense. So we're not born into our, we're not, we don't choose our religions till we choose them. And so that's why often even our spiritual practice or our relationship structure, which we inherit in the exact same way, doesn't align for us. And I don't mean like monogamy or polyamory or whatever that is. That's a whole other bag. But it's like just the way we communicate and what this container of relationship looks like. Like I'm sure as you know, well, I know from my own family is like conflict. The way it was handled was not like out of nonviolent communication. You know, the book where everyone's like, Tell me more about how you feel. And like, I mean, my dad was pretty good at talking to us and my mom too about like our own feelings, but just observing their own conflicts as a kid. I remember it'd be like argument, mom would get mad, dad would leave. And then that was it. And then mom would be sad and I'd want to save mom. Not because my dad was hurting her or anything, just because that, you know, it's like as a little kid, I was the youngest. I'm like, mom, be okay. Don't be sad. And so I developed that need to want to not allow people to hurt, want to save them from it, which doesn't help. Right. Shifting gears a little bit. What do you say to people who have maybe been in some toxic situations in the past, are single out of relationship and are struggling to find a person and um, maybe struggling with like whether or not to settle because maybe they're not going to find what they're looking for. Like, what do you see? What is the, um, and I'm sure it differs, but why might that be happening that someone is unable Mm -hmm. to find 
a partner that's super healthy and um, a good match for them. Well, often their environment is still surrounded. I mean, if you're into toxic relationships or you experience toxic relationships, you probably have people around you who also do, you know, or have toxic behaviors like friends that you might have that sort of like uh, same sort of experience with. I mean, that can be a reason because you haven't removed yourself from that experience, right? So energetically, you're still walking around as someone who enjoys toxicity, even though obviously no one enjoys it. Um, So the other side of it is that we, in that situation, a lot of the times the sort of like lists we create, if we've been terribly hurt and been in, you know, like... uh, some form, whatever anyone wants to define as their own experience of toxicity, the lists that we create are often ways to not allow us to get into relationship again. And so what we think we're doing, which is like, but I can't find anyone. Well, first off, as soon as someone is starting to get like mad about trying to find someone, I already know that they have more to learn about being okay on their own. Because it's okay to desire and have the intention to find a relationship. But if you feel incomplete in that searching, the energy is I need you to love me so I know that I'm loved. Well, no one who's healthy wants to take on the responsibility of someone else's self-worth. So there's still work to do. I think really when you put out this expression of like, I want a healthy relationship, the universe is going to give you so many tests because it's really like, do you? And you're like, yeah. And then the test of time really gets people. But I think it really needs to be coupled with, are you being so picky that you won't allow someone in? It's actually a method to not allow someone close to you. You know, and you can just sort of check in with that energetically. I can usually tell when I talk to someone pretty quickly, it's like, what's on your list? And it's like, well, six foot two and a half and, you know, like these specifics, which are fine. It's just that. At the end of the day, you know, the two qualities in the research that contribute to the best quality relationships are kindness, kindness and generosity. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't desire your partner. You obviously should desire your partner. But it, it also takes a bit for someone who's been really into toxic relationships or just like drama. Let's just say drama. Um, it takes a bit to recode the nervous system to say that drama is not hot. Like what we do till we don't. And this is why someone's like, well, just follow your heart. I'm like, no, don't. Because what you mistake your heart as is, is what you, you know, this term of like, you've eroticized your pain. Like you've made sexy what hurts you. And so like, but I'm so drawn to them. My heart, that's not your heart. Your heart doesn't want you to be hurt. Your heart and intuition aren't like, yeah, go find this fucked up person who's going to treat you like shit. no, That is wound-based. And so we have to learn how to say no to the wound and sit in our own discomfort. But most of us then are like, oh, no, but then my phone and my this, and I'll just go do this, and we stay busy, but we that's why meditation is the key. If you can learn how to meditate and sit through your mind, it will get quiet, and you'll hear all the things you've never wanted to hear. I was working with this girl where she had like, uh, with a big group and in the group, there was like assignments of stuff they had to do. And one of the things was yoga and she was like a crossfitter. So, you know, she's like, I'm not doing that yoga. And I was like, cool. 
Like, I don't, I don't want to argue with a CrossFitter. They're pretty intense. And then she, uh, so it's a 30 day program. At the end of it, she said, I still haven't done that yoga. And I said, you know, the funny thing is, is that the thing we need most is often the thing we avoid. And I was like, what happens when you do yoga? What's going to happen? She's like, well, I mean, it's so boring. And I was like, well, you've never done it first off. So that's bullshit. But I was like, secondly, what happens when you get bored? She's like, well, I don't let myself get bored. I'm like, of course you don't. Why don't you let yourself get bored? What happens when you do? Why my mind runs. And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly why you need it. Like the first time I started meditating, it was like five minutes. I was ready to blow my head out. I was like, what the fuck is happening? I remember being like, five minutes, okay. Okay, it's like the beat, you know? I was already out of the seat, death in the clock. Now I can do 45 minutes, no problem. Yeah. I, I keep citing this study. I've been talking to people about it that I read. Uh, there was something done where men and women were put into the room and given the option of sitting with themselves for like 45 minutes or electrocuting themselves. And some ridiculous number, I think it was like 65% of men chose to electrocute themselves instead of sitting alone. And like 30% of women chose to do it. I just thought that was such a that's an ironic gender difference too. I think yeah. that's so indicative that men will choose suffering over, over actually having to sit with themselves. I think that's also probably socialized. Like men are not taught to be safe with their feelings. Hence why we have a much higher suicide rate. Um, but men are not taught to even acknowledge that their feelings exist. Women experience the same thing. Don't get me wrong. It's just on much larger scale for men. Um, women are told they're crazy or they're too much or they're too needy or they're, but men are told to not have any of that, to just be robotic. And then they face, you know, in a heteronormative situation or even in a same sex relationship, they face an overtly emotional partner and they don't know how to hold that space because they can't even hold their own. And, and it becomes this like, just lack of language. That's why they get so frozen. I mean, I was frozen. I know what it's like to be like, but never have ever used words to describe what's going on in here. So there's no cerebral connection to feeling. And that takes a lot of work. That's where meditation is very helpful. But then, you know, you obviously need to attach the linguist part to it. Yeah, totally. I want to be mindful of your time. I have a couple more questions. Are you? That's rocking. Yeah. Okay, cool. (laughs) That just brought up, like, I love super taboo, but to talk about men and women. And I think, this is like one of my favorite topics as far as nuance and paradox goes, because there, I think on the one hand, it's like we see a difference in uh, femininity and masculinity as somehow one is better than the other, which isn't true. But then when we equalize them, I think we lose a lot of the um, Mm. like inherent difference between the two. Right. Um, Do you, when you work with men and women, how does that differ? And in terms of men's needs versus women's needs in relationship, like how do you deal with that difference? <laughs> I'm going to step on a lot of landmines here. <laughs> Go for it. Um, so I'm going to be genderizing because it's hard to, there's, you know, it's like the difference between men and women is actually less than the difference between men and between women. Well, and I think femininity, masculinity is almost more because it's like not about our body parts, right? Like it's this like yeah, dual. We both, we all have both of them inside of us, but they are on a spectrum. Yeah. So the, 
I mean, I would say that there's a lot of men currently who are in their feminine and there's a lot of women who are in their masculine. And um, for people who don't really, they're like, what are you talking about, you weirdo? Um, you could just think of like masculine traits being like uh, assertiveness, drive. We would say aggression, but that's actually an unhealthy masculine trait. Anger is a human trait. <laughs> that's not, and it's not unhealthy when it's, when it's done healthy, it's actually very, I mean, it's what changes worlds, you know, and look at the Me Too movement and all these, I mean, women are waking up to a lot of pain and the feminine is waking up to a lot of pain, but I would say more women as a gender, um, because I mean, they've basically been property for, I don't know, God, I don't even know, depending on the culture. Of course, that's true too. Um, what's interesting is when I work with men and women, they're not really different. I hear the same thing from women. Like, I'm just not a good communicator. I hear that more from men, but I hear that from women a lot. Um, men don't tend to seek out relationship information till they have to. Women are proactive at that. You know, women tend to be much better communicators, which I think is a product of socialization, but it's also shown, although it's pretty hard to separate socialization from research um, on like a gender quality, right? Uh, but women have more interconnections between the left and right hemisphere of the brain. So that's why they're better at like a language and being able to express and make connections. Um, men tend to be more logical and right brain focused, which makes sense. Right. Um, and men say what they actually mean and women don't tend to. So that's a big difference. So in a heteronormative relationship, or even in a same-sex relationship where one person takes more of a masculine role and the other person takes more of the feminine. That's how it always works. Um, women will often think that a man isn't saying what he means because women don't say what they mean. But men are saying what they mean. It's just like with boundaries. When you look at deal breakers in relationships, men's deal breakers tend to be very solid. Like if they say, I don't want to date someone who's a smoker or I don't I don't want to get married or I don't want a relationship. I want casual. They're t saying what they mean because often people are like, no, but maybe he will fall in love if we have sex a lot. Nope. You'll just have sex a lot and then you'll fall in love. <laughs> That's what will happen. So uh, men tend to be more, more solid in their deal breakers because we don't tend to have an evolutionary need for marriage, right? Because we don't have a baby and we don't need someone around us for 10 months. Um, in the way that uh, when we have sex, the way that the body responds to the hormones that are released is different for men and women. So women will experience more of the flood of oxytocin and like love and will fall in love. Even if you have sex, I know we try to disconnect from that. Uh, but men, when they have sex, testosterone is thought to interact with oxytocin and reduce its life to about a couple days, maybe three days. And women, it's like two weeks, three weeks. So there's like some basic biological differences. Um, I do find that when I work with men, they move quick. When they're ready to change, when they're ready to do it, it's actually pretty, it's pretty unbelievable as like a, as like a baseline of how quick they change. Um, but again, it's so hard for me to genderize because I mean, I've worked with so many women too who are like, I think when the human psyche is done with the bullshit, we're ready. You know, I'm sure since your divorce, you haven't messed around. Look at you, you got a podcast. You've been, I can dove deep on your childhood. You know, <laughs> like once you're ready to say yes, to putting the glasses on, you can't take them off again. That's yeah, you the hard can't part, right? unsee <laughs> what you see. Right.
you all of a sudden realize what ignorance is bliss really means. You know, life was easy when I used to grind on a dance floor and take a shot of tequila, but it wasn't easy. It was awful, but it was fun at the same time because you didn't have to think about all the things, but we're complex and simple at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, in the going back to like, that's where, what my therapist said, I think in that first session, like it really, it helps, at least it did for me helped so much to be engaged in a healthy situation with someone in order to see and experience the differences firsthand. It was like in, even if that relationship didn't last, even if it didn't continue, it was like, I recognized and could feel the difference so palpably that like I would never, it seems, be able to go back to one of those kinds of toxic situations. I think doesn't mean that I wouldn't still be drawn to those things in my life. It doesn't mean that I don't see aspects of those still kind of coming mm-hmm. through, but it really was so vital to experience something different. And um, as as hard as it has been to see what I avoided seeing for so long, it's completely the lesser of two evils to be able to be engaged in a healthy situation and be like, Oh my God, like this is what, this is what I was looking for that whole time. I think that's like a truly, um, a huge growth experience for everybody. Yeah. It's Um, nice to have that modeled. That's why like, if you want to become successful at relationship and you know, whatever your values that you want to develop and skill sets, just go find people who are already doing it. Because not only will they offer hope, but they'll also offer you a model of behavior that you'll just start to adapt to. Because that's what the human system does is it's around someone else. Your nervous system will correlate with theirs. Your skill sets, your communication will start to express the way they do. It's kind of like when you listen to, you know, certain speakers, all of a sudden you notice yourself speaking like them. That's because it's normal for us to do that. Um, we're, we're, I mean, we're so incredibly brilliant on so many subconscious levels that we don't even know we do like we check micro changes micromotor changes in people's facial expressions that we don't even know we're coding that our amygdala has already decided if they're a threat or an opportunity so it's like it's crazy that by the time it becomes conscious the body's already responded right yeah and so we got to get to know ourselves i mean that's the key to love is like get to know you and the things you bring with you so that when they show up, you can bring vulnerable focus to them that is loving, that says, oh, that's that old thing. I haven't worked through it. Would you work through it with me? Because I guarantee you every partner is bringing something too. And, and that's really the beautiful work of love is, is to be able to say like, we're facing the world together. We're not against each other. We're a team that is going we're going to do our healing. Other than knowing yourself and maintaining your authenticity and relationship, what else do you talk about or teach in regard to maintaining long-term like passion in relationship? Well, you definitely have to hold on to who you are. If you lose yourself in your relationship, you won't want to bang your partner because you'll blame them for not having a sense of self. Right. So we won't find them very sexy if they're the, we think they're the reason we don't 
do take care of ourselves, honor ourselves, respect ourselves. That's why wherever you have resentment is really just an indication that you don't prioritize yourself over that person. That's all that means. Um, but we think it's because of them. No, it's because of us. And so the, I think, I mean, the most magical thing you can do, one is constantly be pivoting together. And what I mean by that is, you know, like I have a really good friend whose parents, uh, which we adopted, but our, his parents would um, have what they called an annual general meeting, an AGM. And at it, they would go out for dinner. But before they went out for dinner, they would individually, not together, individually write out what their goals were for the next six months or year um, and, um, and what they wanted to do in their life. And then they would meet for dinner and they would switch papers and they would read them aloud for the first time. And then as a couple over dinner, they would create what the next six months or year looked like to be able to meet each other's goals, but also grow as a couple. I think that's so cool because it's like, we all change so much. Like that's not going to, like, that's not going anywhere. We're not going to just be static. We're going to change. Our partners are going to change. And it's hard enough to keep one human contained, let alone keep two humans in the same direction. And so by doing that, you're constantly steering the ship. You know, you're constantly acknowledging where the ship's at. A lot of people wait 10 years and all of a sudden they're like, holy shit, we're a disaster. Which is pretty hard for any therapy or coaching to rescue you from that. Um, and then the other part is adventure. That is like probably the greatest key to it all is doing new things and going on adventures that are new to one or both of you because your body will associate the, the newness with your partner. And so the body actually keeps this like idea that this is a new experience with a new person, even though it's not a new person. So that's sort of like, uh, I don't want to say a hack cause I don't believe in the hacks. It's more like a, just like a little trick of the biology. We got to get to know our biology because it's working for us or against us. We got to decide. So I'd say that's how you keep adventure though. Keep it new. Awesome. Love it. Um, all right. I mean, I could probably do like a whole other podcast episode with you. Maybe you'll be in Vancouver when I come up there. We could. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. You have to let me know. <laughs> yeah that'd be so sure. fun. You have to let me know. Um, so lastly, uh, I want you to tell people where they can find you. And then the second part of my last question is if you could recommend one book for everyone to read, which mm. is really hard, but what might that book be? Um, okay. Well, the first one question was what, where can people find you? Oh yeah. 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 Uh, so I'm um, create the love on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I think, I mean, you can find I'm under my name on Facebook. And then, uh, which is Mark Groves. And then my website is Mark Groves, uh, Mark with a K, groves.tv, like television. And one book. Oh, it's so hard. I would say that the number one book everyone needs to read in relationship first is Attached. Cool. Who is it by? by man i only know the one it's two others but i only ever mentioned the first one so i gotta <laughs> learn that because i'm not doing i mentioned it all the time amir levine cool uh l-e-v-i-n-e and there is a really uh, there's another book that i just go love. for it it's okay <laughs> is loving bravely by dr alexandra salman yeah 
it's so good. 20 lessons in love and she's funny and it's just such a great book. Amazing. So, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Totally. You're up to this. Is I love the title. I was like, yes, I'm doing that podcast. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. Cool. Well, hopefully this will be the first of many conversations. I love that. uh, Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much again. Hello again. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening to that episode. As a reminder, if you would like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates. Could throw a little bit of cash my way starting at five bucks a month. Helps keep this show afloat from equipment to travel to recording to the time and energy and money it spends to put this out into the world. I, as you know, am not having any ads on the show, so all of the support comes from you guys, like public radio, and that way I can answer to you and to no one else, and I don't have to poison your ears with annoying ads. (laughs) Um, So I can't do this for free forever, so hopefully we can keep it that way, but in order to do so, I need some help. So patreon.com slash Anya Cates. You can also always... uh, Uh, review the show on iTunes, leave me some stars, tell a friend. All of that is greatly, greatly appreciated. I'm going to play you out today with a song called Into the Deep by a band called Galactic featuring Macy Gray. Remember her? I don't know this band, honestly. Um, It was just recommended to me on a Spotify playlist and it's pretty clear how it relates to this episode and this show. Just really about diving deep into relationships with others and allowing it to uncover buried parts of ourselves and heal ourselves from the inside out. So enjoy and talk to you next time.